You're listening to the Acts, How the Gospel Changes the World series, preached by Pastor Dan Christians at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. There's a lot of churches as they, they look forward into and are, are really almost in the midst of a building project um, that you start to worry you know, the church it seems to, the unity that was there before seems to kind of come unraveled. And I, I think any kind of church leadership, as you look forward at a building project, there is a sense of, of nerves of how is this going to go? Is our focus going to stay where it needs to be? Are we going to stay right with the Lord? Um, but at the same time, I think there is this, this sense of excitement in knowing that our church is going to go through a test and the test comes in the form of the building project. And the question is, as we go through something like this, can we keep our focus where it ought to be? Are we able to continue to put Christ first, put the gospel first, and to be unified for the things that matter, and be able to say, well, listen, some of these other, the other disagreements that we might have as far as what color the paint should be, you know, all of those things, can we put those aside and pursue what's important? And so it is a good test for us. And, I, and I'm pleased, I'm so excited to see how our church is doing so far as we move into this, and I'm, in one sense, looking very forward to the next month in seeing how our church does through it all. And so I say that all because my, my message is entitled, When Our Plans Encounter God, but the original title I had for the message was, When All Our Plans Go Awry. And, and I thought, you know what, if we're going into a building project and the message is, When All Our Plans Go Awry, um, I thought maybe that would not inspire the confidence that we want you to have <laughs> in everything that's going on. And so, so just know this, that when I'm speaking about the plans going awry or when I'm speaking about our plans encountering God, I, I'm not specifically speaking about what's going on here and this building project. I'm more speaking about us as individuals and our plans meeting God and at many times being changed because of God's purpose for us and not our own purpose for ourselves. The truth is, I think we've all experienced the pain and agony that goes with having our plans squashed. Our plans just sometimes seem to go up in smoke. It's like, it's like we all tend to plan for things, and our plans always tend to change. And sometimes those changes aren't necessarily bad. Sometimes it's, it's the relationship that blossomed that you just didn't expect. But sometimes it's the relationship ending. And sometimes it's, it's exciting things like finding out you're having a baby and that changes your plans, it changes your direction. Sometimes it's finding out that you can't have babies. Now, do you understand that as we go through life, sometimes it is the promotion you didn't expect, sometimes it's the job offer, sometimes it's the denial, sometimes it, it's somebody saying no to you that changes your plans. We've all gone through this. As I was thinking about my life, and what has changed my plans? Obviously, I would think about my kids coming along and how they've changed everything, and they certainly do change everything. Uh, I thought about my meeting Tara and, and beginning that relationship and being married, and, and that certainly changes the direction you're headed. But I thought that the thing that seemed to change my life the most was the day that I said, Lord, you can have it all. Now, I, I'm certainly not bragging. There are, you, know, you know me well enough to know that there are innumerable ways that I fail. But the day as a 16-year-old where I said, God, I'm going to do what you want me to do, haven't done great the whole way, 
but it changed my life. My plans changed because my purpose had changed. And so what I want to do tonight is we're going to look at the life of the Apostle Paul once again in Acts chapter 26. And we're going to see how Paul, while standing before Agrippa, explains how his life drastically changed. How his plan got interrupted because God had a purpose for him. It's a wonderful story. And so let's pray and then we'll get into the text tonight. Father, we love you, Lord. I thank you for this evening. I thank you that we can open up the perfect word of God. I thank you that um, you've inspired it for us, Lord, that all of this is relevant for us. And as we think, Lord, about our plans, as we think about what we desire to see in our future, as we think about the path that we're on right now, Lord, I pray that you'd help us to have this thought. Do my plans measure up to uh, your purpose for my life? Am I trying to live the way you want me to live? Are my plans right by you, Lord? Uh, I pray you'd help us to ask ourselves these questions tonight. God, we love you. We thank you that you have a greater plan for each of us than we can even imagine. We thank you that we know the greatest plan of all, that there is redemption in Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. So in Acts chapter 26, we've already gone through some of the peripherals of this story. We know that Paul is now on trial before Agrippa. Now, if you've been here the last few weeks, you understand that Paul has already appealed to Caesar. So this trial, it's not really a real trial. This is more like a mock trial where Agrippa has this curiosity of Paul. He wants to know what's going on with Paul. Why is he living the way he's living? I mean, certainly he's heard of Paul's past. He's certainly heard that at some point he was this incredible Jew. So why is he now going around telling everybody that Jesus is alive? What's up with this guy? Agrippa's curious. And then the other reason for this trial is that you have Festus, who now is sending Paul to Rome. The problem is, he doesn't have any charges to send with Paul. And not only will he look foolish when Paul shows up in Rome without any charges to his name, but he will also be breaking the law because you cannot have a prisoner and keep a prisoner unless there is an accusation against him, unless there's charges that are standing against him. And so far, all the charges have been tossed out. They don't make any sense. Festus has agreed. Everybody that has seen Paul so far has agreed that he is not guilty. And so there's no reason for him now to be in chains. And yet he sits here in prison and now he's brought before Agrippa to satisfy this curiosity and to try and answer this question of Festus, why should Paul be going to Rome under trial? And so last week, we looked at verses 1 to 8 of chapter 26, and we saw very clearly that Paul is now living his life for a different purpose. The reason that Paul gives for everything that he has done is that Jesus is alive. He believed that the Messiah, the hope of the Messiah, that he would come, not only that he would come, but that he has come and that he's risen from the dead. And very quickly in those verses, we see why Paul lives. And remember last week, we, we talked about this fact that every single one of us, we're not so different than Paul. For us, the difference is often, do we really believe that Jesus is alive? Are we living in the light of the fact that Jesus is here right now? That when you go to work tomorrow, you're going to work with Jesus in you and with you. That he is alive, that he is our intercessor, that he is, this isn't just a story, that he's here. That fact should change all of our lives. And so Paul, in verses 4 to 8, summarizes his whole story. And then starting in verse 9, we're going to get like a break where it's almost like he says, 
I'm living because of the hope. I'm living because Jesus is alive. Is there any reason you can think that, that God can't raise the dead? Oh, hold on a second. Let me back up a little bit. Let me explain the whole story. Let me explain what happened to me. And so in verse 9, that's where we're going to start reading tonight, Paul begins to tell the whole story. So now he's standing here in this courtroom, surrounded by all of these powerful, important men and women who are looking down on him as he stands there as just a normal guy in prison garments, giving an answer for himself. And he says, I verily thought with myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Paul says, this is what I thought. This was my plan. This is what I was doing with my life. I was doing many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. I was his enemy, a vowed enemy, and I was doing everything I could to mess with him and to mess with his people. Verse 10. Which thing I also did in Jerusalem. So he starts in Jerusalem. That's where he's from. Makes sense. And many of the saints did I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I gave my voice against them. Paul says, I started in Jerusalem, and the first thing I did is I shut people in prison. I went to the chief priests, and I got authority for me to be able to go into their homes and haul them off to prison and punish them. But that wasn't enough, because in verse 11 he says, And I punished them oft in every synagogue. I didn't just go in the temple, now I'm going in the synagogues. And I compelled them to blaspheme. And the idea there is that, that he did everything he could to have those people turn away from Jesus, to blaspheme his name, and to turn back to Judaism. Now Paul understands now that this was blasphemy because Jesus is God. Back then he thought what he was doing was right. But when he says, I compelled them to blaspheme, I think it's interesting to know that, that he is saying what he tried to do. He is not saying what happened. Okay? There is nothing in the text that would lead us to believe that people did blaspheme. He was just doing his best to make them blaspheme. And so these people were standing strong and they were being hauled off to prison and they were being persecuted because they knew that Jesus was alive. Then it says in second half of verse 11, And being exceedingly mad against them, I persecuted them even unto strange cities. Whereupon, as I went to Damascus with authority and commission of the chief priests, at midday, O king, I saw in the way a light from heaven above the brightness of the sun shining round about me and them which journeyed with me. And so he, he, he finishes in verse 11 there and he just says, this is how angry I became. When he says exceedingly mad, the word exceedingly means super abundantly. When he says mad, he's talking about a rage, an out of control rage. And so I was super abundantly angry, so much so that I pursued these people. Like I was on their tail. I was the predator. They were my prey and I was going to get them. And so he says in verse 12, I started putting my plan. Everything that I thought I ought to do, I put that into action. See, Paul is not just the guy who sits back. He's the guy that has convictions, he has beliefs, and he acts on them. And that is commendable. He takes the initiative and says, listen, if Jesus is a false God who set himself up and people are worshiping him falsely and turning from Judaism, then these people need to be killed. They need to be stopped. So he says, so I did it. I went out. And on the road to Damascus, he says, something happened. Here, Paul's plan encounters God. He says in verse 13 that at midday, in the noonday sun, 
there was a, a bright light. Now, that's, that's important because he's trying to make the point that it was in the middle of the day. The sun was at its highest. It was the hottest in the middle of the desert. And here, this sun is way outshone by this light that appeared to us. It was so great, it says in verse 14, that we were fallen to the earth. We all fell down. We were all terrified. Not just me, everybody that was with me. We were fallen to the earth, and I heard a voice speaking unto me, saying in the Hebrew tongue, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. I love the way Jesus says that. Because he's, he's beginning to make this clear. Now, I mean, he could have been a lot harsher on Paul. We, we understand that. But he's beginning to make this clear to Paul. You are not fighting individual Christians. You are not fighting that person that you hauled off to prison. You're persecuting me. Why are you persecuting me? And then he says, it is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And, and a prick, what's going on here is it's, it's a goad. And so what this was is they would often take oxen and they would have really sharp sticks that they would set up behind the oxen. And the farmer would keep the oxen in line. When the oxen started going the wrong direction, they would, they would poke them. They would use this goad or this prick to poke them to make them keep going the direction they want them to go. And what would happen is the oxen wouldn't like it. And so they would kick back. And they would try and get rid of the pricks, but when they did that, they would kick into the sharp goad. And so it was very painful them, for them to kick against the pricks. So it, it was a bad idea. You, you shouldn't try and disobey your master, because when you do that, you're going to kick against the pricks. It's going to hurt a lot. But this was not just something that Jesus put together here. This was actually a phrase that is used often in Greek literature. And the idea wasn't just, don't do something that's going to hurt yourself. The idea was you're trying to go against your destiny or you're trying to go against the will of the gods. The phrase kick against the pricks is often used to mean you're trying to go against the gods. You're going against your destiny. What you're doing here, it's, it's never going to work for you. It's going to be painful and it's going to end up failing. And so Jesus used this because Paul would have understood exactly what he meant. He said in verse 15, And I said... Who art thou, Lord? <laughs> Again, I, I think of Paul, the brilliant theologian. And, and understand that Paul, when he got saved, he spent three years understanding the Old Testament in a new way. But prior to his salvation, he knew the Old Testament like the back of his hand. He was one of the greatest disciples of Judaism that was alive in the day. He was a guy that eventually would be on the Sanhedrin. He was an impressive disciple of Gamaliel. And so here's a guy who knows all about God. And now he turns to him and he says, Lord, he says, God, who are you? Doesn't that strike you as funny? It's like, like the God that he's supposed to know so well, all of a sudden he realizes he just didn't know. That what he thought to be true, it wasn't true. His whole world is turning upside down at this point, And it's a good thing. And Jesus says, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. And then he says in verse 16, but rise. Now listen, I know we are not there, and I know Paul is giving an abbreviated version of this, but do you remember what happened to Paul here? He was knocked down, and he, he looks up, still on the ground, 
And he says, Lord, who are you? And Jesus says, I'm Jesus. And so he reveals to Paul who he is. And so now Paul now understands who he is. And, and eventually he understands he's going to have to do what, what Jesus says. But Jesus right away says, now I want you to stand up and go. He didn't say, now, now don't get me wrong. We must at times fall on our face before God. This was humbling for Paul and it was a good act of worship and veneration to Jesus, and Jesus was fully deserving of all that. But then Jesus says, now get up and I want you to go tell people. He doesn't leave him on the ground. He says, but rise and stand upon thy feet, for I have appeared unto thee for this purpose. I have a purpose for you. I have a reason. I have something for you to do. It is to make thee a minister and a witness both of these things which I have seen and of the things in the which I will appear unto thee, delivering thee from the people, from the Gentiles, unto whom now I send thee. Jesus says, I have a purpose for you. You are going to be a minister and a witness, and you're going to go to the Gentiles. And then in verse 18, Jesus says one of the greatest gospel verses in the Bible. There is so much truth packed into this verse and so much to celebrate in this verse. This is what Paul is being sent to do. This is the ultimate goal. This is what the mission of Jesus is for the Apostle Paul, and I would say for the church. It is to open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. I mean, it really doesn't get better than that verse, does it? I want you to go and open their eyes. I want them to see truth. I want them to see me. I want them to go from the darkness that they're in, and they are in darkness. Okay? You, you, you realize here, Jesus is not painting a picture where there's like, there's darkness, and there's light, and then there's this, this huge dim area in between. Right? And most people would want to paint that picture, like we're all on a journey and we're just at you know, different places. But Jesus, when he's talking about people, he's saying, I want you to turn the people that are in darkness to light. Who is light? Well, Jesus is light. So turn people from darkness. Now that darkness could come in a number of different ways, right? We've seen it. We see man's plan for their own salvation worked out in every false religion on the earth. And all of it ultimately boils down to me reconciling myself to God. And so whatever your darkness is, if you are at this point thinking that you can reconcile yourself to God by your good works, by your church, by your religion, by something that you are going to do that's going to merit your salvation, Jesus says you're in darkness and you need to be turned from darkness to light, from self-justification to Christ. And from the power of Satan unto God. There's no middle ground, is there? This is something that, that the vast majority of people do not believe, but something that Jesus said is absolutely true, that everybody is serving somebody. There isn't a neutral life. It's either the power of Satan or it's you're serving God. Those are the options. And so he's, he's saying you're going to turn them from the power of Satan, from the, from the hold that Satan and that sin has in their lives to the freedom that they can have in God. 
he makes it clear what that is, that they may receive forgiveness of sins. Pastor spoke this morning very clearly about the fact that every single one of us has, have broken God's law. All of us. And, and the offer and Paul's purpose and the purpose of the church is to bring to these people the message of forgiveness of sins. That all of those things that you've done can be forgiven. It doesn't matter who you are. I mean, remember who he's talking about and who he's talking to when he's saying these things? He's talking to Paul. Paul had been going around murdering people. He'd been going around persecuting Jesus, the church of Christ. And he says, I want you to show these people that there is forgiveness of sins. And then he goes on and he says, not only forgiveness of sins, not only will you not be held accountable for everything you've done, but you will have an inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. You have something to look forward to. There is heaven above. This is an unbelievable mission, an unbelievable truth. And Paul is handed this and he's just said, listen, Paul, this is what you're going to do. This is the rest of your life. Now go do it. Now, you've got to get that picture in your mind of Jesus knocking Paul off his horse or wherever he was and him on the ground and him recognizing him as God and having this light that is so bright that you can't see anything else and then him being blinded after it for a while just because it was so bright and so wonderful and that now he knows that God is clearly speaking to him, giving him his purpose. And verse 19 says, Whereupon, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. It's like, no kidding! <laughs> hey, God like knocked me off my horse and he kind of pinned me down and he said, I'm God and you're persecuting me. You need to stop and this is what you're going to do. And I did it. <laughs> That's what we should do, right? That should be our response. And the problem is, I think that so often we come to a point where we recognize that to be true. I mean, we recognize at least that God is on the throne, that Jesus is God, that, that he is the king, that he is the savior. We recognize all the truths that Paul now knew and we say we believe them. And then when he says, this is what you're going to do, we say, in a bit. Yeah, maybe in a, in a little while. Yeah, I'll get to that eventually. Okay, I'm not sure I can go that far, but I'll meet you halfway. This is usually a response to God. Do you know, I, I was thinking about um, Miles this afternoon. I told Miles to do something. And then he kind of like, like you know he's planning to do it maybe sometime in the future. But it's just not happening right now. When, when I tell Miles to do something and he doesn't do it, even if he's planning to do it maybe sometime in the future, when I say, Miles, come here, and he doesn't come here, what is he doing? He's being disobedient, right? It's not a matter of, well, Jesus says he wants you to do something, but take your time. No biggie. I mean, just... No, I recognize that it takes people time before they really understand the gospel. It takes some people time before they know. I mean, God doesn't just throw everything at you all at once. But what I'm saying is, there are many times that we know what we ought to do. We know what he's told us to do. We know that he's alive. We know that he's king. And we say, sure, later. I'll get to it someday. Paul, Paul responded well. Agrippa, I, I couldn't be disobedient to a king like that. That's it. And I've lived my life from that point on in obedience to my king. And so, very quickly, let's look at three applications to our, to our text tonight. The first application is this. We must understand God's purpose. We must understand God's purpose. Because 
back at the beginning, the problem was Paul had his own plan, his own purpose, he had his own life, and he was not really concerned with what God really wanted from him. Later on, Jesus appears to him and says, Paul, I have a purpose for you. I have something that I want you to do. And so we must understand God's purpose. God's immediate purpose for Paul was that just to reveal himself and show that he's alive and have Paul come to him for salvation. But when Paul recognizes his lordship, and and we're getting a very short version, but let's extend this to like the time that he met Ananias and he understood all that he was supposed to do. And let's, Paul Paul is now saved and and recognizes Jesus as Lord. When that happens, when he understands who Christ is, then he has a command for Paul and what he expects Paul to be. And he, you remember he gave two things that he wanted him to be back in verse 16. He said, I want you to be a minister and a witness. Now we know the Apostle Paul, we know his life, we know ultimately he's going to be the greatest missionary of all time, he's going to be a wonderful apostle, he's going to write a third of the New Testament, he's going to do incredible things, right? So we know that about Paul, but Jesus doesn't say you're going to be an apostle and a New Testament writer, and you're going to, you're going to have all these special jobs. He gives them the two jobs that all of us are called to do to be a minister, and to be a witness. I think that Paul's making that point for a reason. Because we're all in that boat when we come to Christ. Be a minister and witness. And I like how in this passage, the word that Jesus uses for minister is different than the word he often uses, or the word that is often used for servant or slave in the Bible. The word here is hyperites and it literally means, the, it's the word for under rower. And almost every time in the Bible that this is used, it's only used by Jesus, when it's, when it's talking about believers, it's used by Jesus speaking about believers. And an under rower was somebody who was working with the, the captain, working with, trying to accomplish the same purpose, but was subordinate to him. Right? And so Jesus uses this, and he's giving him this, this idea. Now, Paul could have used, or Jesus could have used the term doulos, which would have meant slave. It was just referring to who you are, you have no rights, you are a slave. He could have used that term. He could have used the term diakonos, which, which refers more to what he's going to be doing. You're going to be serving me. But instead he uses the term to indicate the relationship that they were going to have. And that relationship is, I am going to be your master, you're going to be my subordinate, but we're working together for this. And that's how, that's how Jesus is viewing this relationship. You are called to be an under-rower for Christ, to work below him, to fulfill his purpose for your life and his plan for your life, but you're called to do it with him and with his power, not apart from him. And so he says you are to be a servant, and he says you're supposed to be a witness. That word witness is, is martis. It's where we get our word martyr. And I think, certainly we understand the, a witness bears testimony to what they've seen and heard, but a witness here also I, gives their life. I mean, gives themselves for this truth. It is beyond just one time giving a statement of what you believe. It is a living witness. Uh, it, it takes your life to bear testimony to this truth. So we must understand God's purpose. And God's purpose for Paul was to be saved and then to be a minister and a witness. Either... We need to believe in the gospel that was presented here to Paul and see the truth, or we do believe the gospel and we must go and tell that truth. Those are the options for us. 
Jesus calls us to the same thing that he called Paul to. So number one, we must know God's purpose. Number two, we must compare our plans with God's purpose. We saw before that Paul is very passionate. He, he has a plan. He is showing initiative. He's acting. Right? He's very driven. But we must compare our plans to God's purpose. When, when Jesus looked at Paul's plans, he says, you're kicking against the pricks. You're, you're kicking against the goads. You are, you're trying to thwart the will of God in your life. And, and it's going to hurt you, and ultimately it's going to fail. And so what we do with our plans is we step back and say, okay, what am I pursuing? What do I want for my life? Is this in line with God's purpose for me? If you understand that God's purpose, first of all, is for you to be a minister and a witness, then the question is, am I being, and, 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 I, and will I be able to be a minister and witness the best way possible doing what my plans entail? Because if not, then we must change our plans, right? Some of my favorite verses in the Bible are found in James chapter 4. And in James 4, James says, Go to now you that say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain. So you have these businessmen that have good business plans. Let's go to this city. Let's buy and sell and get gain. That's what we're going to do for this year. And and it's going to work out well for us. Sounds like a good plan to me. But then James says, Whereas you know not what shall be on the morrow. You don't know what's going to happen with your life tomorrow. Your life is like a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. You're here for such a short time. And this is his logic. You ought to say, if the Lord will, we will do this or that. You have these plans, but you're not thinking about the fact that you have a short life and your plans must match God's purpose for your life. And if it's not, then, then quit it. Get rid of those plans. Get new plans because you only have this short time. You're, you're here for a little time and then vanishes away. So do what the Lord wills for your life. We must compare our plans with God's purposes. If you consider how Paul's life turns out, I think we would probably say that very often it seems like God's plans for Paul were strange. They were surprising. Uh, even Paul sometimes was surprised because Paul was a strategist. He, he went to the cities that were close by. He went to the cities that, he, he always went to big cities. He went to places that he understood the language. It would make sense for Paul to, to be in Jerusalem because he knows all, Judaism so well. Why not? And God just turns those plans upside down over and over again and sends them to different places because God's plans are better. We often talk about the verse in Isaiah that says, my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. And we just go, okay, well then that just means God is smarter than me. And it does mean that. God is smarter than you. Okay? But it's interesting he says, my ways are higher than your ways. It's not just that I'm smarter, but this, the plan that I'm going to put you on is so much better than the plan that you could have for yourself. And that's true for Paul. Now, in verse 17, Jesus promised Paul that he would deliver him from the Gentiles, meaning he would protect him. So Jesus is going to protect Paul. That was promised. So God is sovereign enough to keep Paul alive. But when we follow Paul's life, what are, what are Jesus' plans for Paul's life? Suffering, and then suffering, and then more suffering, and then suffering. And Isn't that true as we walk through Paul's life? It's like he's always in jail or being beaten or being hated or being humiliated somehow. That's Paul's life, right? Isn't it true that if Jesus could protect him from death, he could have protected him from suffering? Makes sense to me. He could have. 
And so Jesus' plan for Paul's life was that he go through that suffering. And his plan was best. And so we must step back and look at our plans and say, are my plans, to the best of my ability, fulfilling the purpose of being a minister and being a witness to the gospel? Do our plans match God's plans? Finally, point number three, we must obey. Pretty simple, right? Christianity actually isn't that difficult. Um, do you know that, that, that pastors, we pretend like we get up here every week and have a brand new message? And really, there's two messages. There is, you need to know Christ, you need to, to love and obey Christ. That, that's it. And they're packaged really differently, and the Bible does give us lots of material to do that. But, but ultimately, we must obey. And if we're not obeying, then we're missing it. Paul here is overwhelmed by who Jesus is, and so he does what he says to do. And if I could express to you in, in just those words, that would be my goal for my life. I want to be overwhelmed by who Jesus is, and then I want to do what he says. That would be my goal for every teenager in our church's life. That would be my goal for every one of your lives. That's what we'd love to see. People being overwhelmed by who Jesus is. You love Jesus so passionately, you're amazed by him and what he's done for you. And because of that, you want to do what he says. We must obey. If you love me, keep my commandments. I want to close by reading some verses in Isaiah 42 because I, I want these verses to enlarge your view of God's plan. Isaiah chapter 42 says this, Behold my servant whom I uphold. Isaiah 42 is a, is a Messianic prophecy. It's speaking about the Messiah that would come. It's speaking about Christ. So behold my servant whom I, I uphold, mine elect in whom I delighteth. I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not cry, nor lift up, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed shall he not break, and the smoking flax shall he not quench. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. He shall not fail, nor be discouraged, till he have set judgment in the earth, and the isles shall wait for his law. Thus saith God the Lord, he that created the heaven and the earth stretched them out. He that spread forth the earth and that which cometh out of it. He that giveth breath unto the people upon it and spirit unto them that walk therein. I, the Lord, have called thee in righteousness and I will hold thine hand and I will keep thee and give thee for a covenant of the people for the light to the Gentiles to open the blind eyes to bring out the prisoners from prison and them that sit in darkness out of the prison house. I hope that as we read some of those words, it drew your attention back to God's purpose for Paul. And I hope then we realize that this was not just God's purpose for Paul. This was God's purpose 700 years before Jesus came for what Jesus would do. That, that all of that is written about Christ. And that God's purpose is so much bigger than Paul and so much bigger than us. And we are so privileged that we can have a small part in it. And so let us examine our lives, examine our plans and say, am I doing what God wants me to do with my life? If not, you're missing out on the greatest thing alive. Either we need to believe in the gospel and see the truth, or we do believe the gospel and we must go and tell the truth. Let's pray.